0: Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand messaging alive via original or value-added, digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the producer and co-host of Pop Health Week and publisher of acowatch.com. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague and lead co-host of Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. On today's show, our guest is Jane Sarson Kahn, author, health economist, advisor and trendweaver supporting organizations at the intersection of health, technology and people. Jane founded the popular blog Think Health After working for 10 years with healthcare consultancies in the United States and Europe, Jane's clients are all stakeholders in health, technology, biotech, life sciences, providers, plans, retail, financial services, food, and consumer goods. In her new book, Health Citizenship, How a virus Open Hearts and Minds, Jane weaves together six months of new data, including consumer market research, health policy developments, healthcare industry updates clinical evidence, biostatistics, and pop culture to make sense of the next normal for life, health, healthcare, and the evolving American commons social contract. This timely piece tracks how the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 has and will likely continue to reshape our world. So with that introduction out of the way, Fred, over to you. Let's catch up with Jane.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. And Jane, welcome to Pop Health Week.
2: Lovely to be with you, Fred.
0: Yeah, it's
1: fantastic to have you on again. And once again, you have another book out. A fantastic book. I just read it. How a Virus Opened Hearts and Minds, Health Citizenship. So what made you decide to write this one?
2: So the end of last year's book, which was called Health Consuming, that asked the question, will health consumers in the U.S. move to health citizens? And that looked at things like social determinants of health and zip codes versus genetic codes and the growth of digital. But at the end of the day, we still were missing universal health care and a really solid digital privacy law, which we needed because so much falls outside of HIPAA. And then um, the pandemic hit in February. I had my last plane trip, February 28th, out to Scripps down in um, San Diego area and flew home that day And Laurie Garrett, the famous pandemic uh, writer who won the Pulitzer, asked on Rachel Maddow, who do you want to be with for the next many months and where do you want to be? And I called my husband, who was in Brussels, where he lives a lot of the time now, as I'm trying to do, and said, you better get home because Lori said we have to be together for the foreseeable future. And I started to put together the fact that this pandemic is really changing us in so many formidable ways in the great lockdown of the pandemic, separate from the virus, the financial impacts, the mental and emotional impacts, the fact that our homes were increasingly becoming not just the hubs of health that I've talked about for a long time, but the hubs of school and learning and work and cooking and baking sourdough bread for people who never did that before. And it struck me that we were changing in in a new experimental way collectively around the world. And so I tracked data from every source where I've been mining data for years, from Accenture to uh, the Pew Research Group to Commonwealth Fund and Kaiser, but even Nielsen who wrote about the pandemic pantries and how we were keen on food and hygiene. And all that relates to health care and ultimately health policy. And so I collected data vociferously absorbing it for six months and wrote a little 112 page book on Kindle with everything I learned in those six months condensed into that little form uh, to then ask and answer the question, is America ready for health citizenship? And the answer is, if not now, when?
1: Right. So the, the, the virus has created this huge change for all of us. And as part of that change, you know, we're we're stuck. We're in our houses. Obviously, the healthcare system's been hit pretty hard. You talked about a couple of key areas. One of them that everyone's kind of focused on so far has been telehealth. Mm-hmm. And one of the quotes I took from your book was Nicholas Bloom's comment that it's the ticking time bomb for inequality. That's right. Talk us through that.
2: So as we entered 2020, um, people's finances were pretty solid in January, but many more people, millions of more people were uninsured as we entered 2020 versus when we started in 2016. So we already had 27 million uninsured during 2020, and the pandemic only fanned the flames of that. At the same time, in the stay-at-home era, work-from-home, the hashtag WFH, became trending we were in this great lockdown so you have the virus pandemic itself the disease right everyone trying to risk manage COVID exposure but um, in the great lockdown we have the recession now which um, is sitting heavier on people of color and on women so uh, you know some of the work i do is in just economics looking at macroeconomics and the 2008 recession hit you and Greg harder than it hit me, theoretically. It was uh, it was a man's recession in terms of the industries and jobs that were hit in 2008, 2009. But in this round, it's heavily hit the service industry, jobs that have to be done up close and personal, home health aides, a lot of healthcare actually got hit uh, in terms of electives and, and clinic clinic care, teachers, retailers. So folks who were doing those jobs were largely women, and largely women who were Black or Latinx. And so this has been a she session that, you know, again, a financially toxic effect of the pandemic. And then the third epidemic or pandemic that's been raised this summer with the death of George Floyd, has been the civil and social wake-up call again <laughs> and again which is not new news but surprisingly this summer some of the the polling data that i share in the book from the american psychological association in june done a couple of weeks after george was killed in minneapolis shows that many more white people were sympathetic to Either Black Lives Matter specifically or p- peaceful protests. And this was a new new thing for this girl who grew up in you know Detroit. I've been well aware of issues of race, structural racism, social determinants of health for a long time, as you know, and especially in healthcare. But something was different this time. The hopeful part of the book is that I quote from The service uh, from when John Lewis was was memorialized, the pastor from the Ebenezer Church said, we're not all in the same room because we were watching on Zoom and on video, but we're all on the same page. So I don't know that we're all on the same page, but I think and I'm hopeful that most of us are on the same page right now when it comes to income inequality, and all these social determinant issues?
1: Yeah, it's really a fascinating question. I noticed we had exchanged some emails before the call about this, where you had quoted said, most people in the US have arrived on the same page about health insecurity, acutely aware of our collective need for Americans to step up, not just as citizens, but as health citizens. And on the one hand, I I agree completely. And on the other hand, I see what's going on around us. And you cover some of this in the other parts of your book and talk about trust and issues like that. And do you think things like the change in telehealth and the change in this belief system that we're beginning to recognize and these fundamental structural issues around social determinants, inequality, do you think we're going to have the oomph to get over the top on those? You talk about being positive.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot. Wa- I, I do a lot of scenario planning right now because we honestly don't know <laughs> where things are going to go in a, in a straight line. It's very curvy and very uncertain. But a couple of the wild cards, which are the things that could blow our forecasts to smithereens, a couple of things to think about are one, aside from, uh, quote, who wins the election November 3rd or November 10th or December 17th, whenever we we get that information, because we know it won't be on the 3rd due to the big mail-in votes that, that are forecasted, is the role that business has been playing. So I started to see Places like, and I'll just talk about health, CVS quitting smoking a few years back, taking a pretty bold public health move. Analysts, cynics, you know, stock analysts uh, said, well, they made it up on the specialty drug side and PBM and whatever. But the fact is they gave up a very profitable business line called Tobacco. And, and they did that several years ago, and rebranded from CVS Pharmacy to CVS Health. And we we know what CVS has been doing since then, really vertically integrating and merging with Etna, etc. And then a couple of years ago, when the school shootings became very visible and frequent, sadly, tragically, Walmart decided to take a lot of firearm stuff uh, uh, off its shelves. Not everything, but but some some pretty serious uh, firearm categories and different support items f- for that, supply items. And so Walmart's been taking a very strong stand in health and in public health. And we could see of uh, this the role that both CVS and Walmart have been playing in the pandemic. So um, at the end of the book, in the fourth chapter, which talks about the health citizenship question, I bring up the business group, the, the Sorry, the Business Roundtable, which talks about the sustainability goals, ESG, Environment, Society, Governance. And in the social part, the S, they talk about things like fair wages and doing things in local communities for the good of the community beyond the share. Holder beyond the investor. And this group of CEOs signed this manifesto a year, year and a half ago or so. So a lot of us have been watching to see. uh, And certainly Jamie Dimon, uh, one of the leads on there, the banker, he's been doing some amazing things, uh, even before the pandemic in terms of, of very anti redlining stuff anti-redlining and things for his communities where his banks are. So the role of business stepping up, the long-winded answer is is this question, because while business can't mandate clean water in Flint, Michigan, and that's a big public health issue, but do a lot of other things in terms of education, income, literacy, access, diversity, and inclusion, doing the right thing in communities beyond state uh, shareholders. So I see business stepping into health certainly, because health is a fifth of the economy now, but business also in this diversity and inclusion moment, some walking the talk. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying everybody will, but I think it's a big deal. And I sit on the advisory board for W2O Group, the, the agency, and Jim Weiss, the W in WTO, he's taken some major moves. And one of the reasons I agreed to work with them is that they're walking the talk and just plugging it here only because it's an example of a company that's giving people the day off to vote, time off to be... Political, where however you want to be political, this moment, and we've been talking a lot about what that means in terms. What does inclusion mean? So um, I think a lot of companies are having that discussion now. So this is one area I think I have hope for uh, in business but the other wild card is what happens with the public sector um mm-hmm. and so will we get to climate change seriously because we know as of today there's tremendous flooding going on in the south and burning stuff going on in the west and i'm in philadelphia and we have some dirty air in the sky uh, on my sundowns now coming from the west so we are all in the same lifeboat right we're all in a commons and that's a theme in my last chapter which we are a commons whether you like me or not like i wear the mask for you and you for me so there's this role public sector should play when it comes to environment, clean air, clean water, transportation policy, food security, and food safety policy. And of course, education, 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 uh, let alone healthcare. So health is baked into public policy or not. And to get where we want to go for full-on health citizenship, it's not just about healthcare. It's about being healthy so we don't need the downstream bed. We want to care for care. We want to have care at home, care in the community. And that's why I talk about retail so much and the role of the black barbershop and the why, because in fact, this is where we can, we can make care and socialize. And so have that social connectivity along with the healthcare connections. So telehealth is a bridge. And um, I think it's, it's terrific. Um, We need the business model for telehealth needs to be sorted out along with quality And figuring out where it's appropriate, where it's not. So as everybody in our field is saying, we stood up to, you know, what could take two years and two weeks or 20 years and two weeks, or another quote that came across uh, to me in modern healthcare today was something like COVID-19 blew open the door for virtual care. So, uh, but the question is, what's the sustainability of that? So again, uh, what will public policy do for that reimbursement and so on?
0: And if you're just tuning in to Pop Health Week, our guest is author, health economist, and advisor Jane Saracen-Khan. And with an assist from HIMSS, we're discussing her new book, Health Citizenship, How a Virus Opened Hearts and Minds, a timely piece that tracks how SARS-CoV-2 has and will likely continue to reshape our world. For more information, go to www.healthcitizenship.com and do follow Jane on Twitter via at Healthy Thinker. And uh,
1: yeah, quickly before we get to the next one, on that whole issue, do you see, I've heard, you know, health plans saying, we're going to go ahead and stop paying for telehealth now. We're through this portion where we needed it. Is it going to slow down? Obviously, there's also been this huge growth in telehealth companies, new entrance to the market, public buyouts, you name it. Where do you feel that goes?
2: You know, th- this is a big question. And certainly I'm tracking a lot of what the American Telemedicine Association is doing under the leadership of Ann Mon Johnson, who in full transparency has been a friend of mine for 30 years when we were both young girls working in Europe in healthcare. So that's where I met her. She's one of my oldest friends in the field. But she's really reestablishing what is telehealth uh, in the ATA and has amazing uh, membership she's building. So I'm tracking what they're doing uh, under uh, Dr. Kavita of course uh, as well who's the board chair there you know we need to to care for people in lower cost settings and we need to care for people at home so this is our moment again an opportunity let's not blow a crisis opportunity as Churchill was wont to say um, or quoted as saying I should say this is health politics it's politics because it's economics because it's a -a whack-a-mole we take money away from the bed and what is the nature definition of a hospital. And many hospitals now in America, you know, AHA did their study in June and then Kauffman Hall updated in July. Hospitals will lose upwards of over $300 billion this year. And there are many cynics who say, well, there's a lot of waste and all that. It's real. I mean, 50% of hospitals, uh, Kauffman Hall said in July, would have negative margins in the fourth quarter of 2020. 50% of US hospitals. We've already had an erosion of rural hospitals in the last few years anyway. So I think we're at this turning point again of um, what is the nature of healthcare? Is sick care, well care. And this is the time for us to, to keep pivoting to telehealth where it's appropriate. Care to the home, self care teaching people how to care for themselves, reversing Mm pre-diabetes, right?
1: I agree with you completely. So here's my issue with telehealth. As I see it being rolled out today, it's an add-on that the physicians essentially say, you need to pay me the same as if I did an office visit. But in reality, if you did telehealth right, you wouldn't need the office. You wouldn't need the staff. You don't have the bed, all those costs. So it should be cheaper, but we never seem to pivot there. Is it gonna happen this time?
2: Well, I mean, it didn't happen with fax machines, did it? Or computers or lots of things. Healthcare always adds technology on top of technology. So you get an MRI, but you don't get rid of the pet or you don't get rid of the x-ray and you know, uh, this is what has stood up uh, a lot of medical technology companies for many years. I mean, we can't afford to layer on anymore. We're so broke, we're broker than anybody realizes. I'm an economist married to a banker. We don't hardly sleep anymore. We're yeah. both worried about in our respective jobs, what's going on. Global finance for him and, and for me, you know, we, we don't have sustainable Medicare right now, or social security trust funds because of the recession that we're in. I keep going back to the macroeconomics because we're not paying this year tax monies. We working people uh, who lost jobs or who had hours cut into our social security funds and Medicare funds. So there, you know, the trust fund will run out of money a few Mm -hmm. years earlier the forecasts say. So when you broke, like in the UK, when they started the National Health Service, God bless them, you know, they were looking at the fact that they had to budget money. And we've never done that in America, because we think it's, I don't know, socialist. But um, now, the fact is, we will be broke, broker than we have felt in a long time, in terms of GDP, and then tax coffers. And at the state level, Medicaid, education. I mean, state finances are really going to be broke because of this Absolutely. situation. And, uh, you know, 2022 will be when people will start to dig out. But next year is going to be a world of hurt in terms of household economies. And consumers won't be able to buy health insurance um, mm-hmm. out of pocket, at, say, 1000 thousand, two thousand 2000 a month because uh, people will be cutting back a lot um, so we we will we will remember with wistfulness what Andrew Yang talked about, you know, a uh, one thousand dollar a month uh, basic uh, income, because in fact that will resonate with a lot more people uh, in the coming weeks, months, uh, maybe eighteen months between now and when we'll start digging out in late twenty one into twenty two. Um, so no, I think necessity is a mother when you're broke, and I think we're going to have to start to realize that. Um, We can't keep layering tech on tech on tech uh, anymore. And that's why I raised the question, what is the nature of a hospital? And we've already had some hospital systems in our mountain, Mercy, Virtual, really taking on telehealth in a major way. And in my city, and you know uh, Thomas Jefferson Hospital very well from work that you do, they just announced a huge plan in the middle of a pandemic. To reimagine what is a hospital in this urban area, and I couldn't be more delighted because there's a ton of virtual stuff that's going to happen from there. So, (laughs) you know, we really have to reimagine. Companies like Philips, pivoting hospital to home, Um, this stuff's been going on now for some months, starting before the pandemic, which has been really an accelerant to it.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch because it is certainly, I always think of the Shrek onion. You know, we added another layer and it's just layers on layers. I just am concerned that hospitals, yes, at the one hand, there's huge losses, but on the other hand, we need to be taking these costs out. So where are they going to come from if we got to pay all the money back into that? It creates a really tough political and financial and operational situation.
2: It really does. But uh, the nature of buildings is changing with half of the people in America not wanting to leave home. Uh, And we've seen even very nice uptake, and I say nice because I believe in this, uh, in in virtual care amongst people over 50 based on American well numbers that I've seen. Mm So the fastest growth was with older people in doing virtual care. And I think some of these life flows are going to stick with people. So there'll be pressure from the bottom up from consumers and pressure from health systems saying, and insurers saying, uh, let's keep going with some of this that's appropriately done. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned earlier, the toxic effects financially of the pandemic. You also talk in this book about the toxic effects from a mental health perspective and How do you see that playing out? Are we going to begin to address those issues better or there are new technologies or other ways we can do that in the new world?
2: Yeah. So um, I've been worried about this area for a long time since I was a big fan of Paul Wellstone when I was a very young consultant uh, who really argued for, advocated for parity in paying for mental health. So if we don't bundle mental and behavioral health into primary care, um, we will continue to screw ourselves out of good health outcomes. Because as it turns out, most chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes or Parkinson's or fill in the blank, uh, have a comorbidity of anxiety or depression in some phase of that Life cycle of the disease at diagnosis, in the middle, toward the end of life, or throughout. So um, we need to just think of mental and behavioral health as health, uh, and uh, think of it as, as just part of part of the care. But uh, it needs to be in prime, be in primary care. So when we think about upfronting um, a checklist with asking some good questions about. You know, how you, how you doing? How you feeling? How's your sex life? You know, did you lose your job? Did you, did you get a new job? Are your kids making you crazy? And in the pandemic, every young parent is saying yes. <laughs> so we're seeing again this, top, this other side effect of mental and behavioral health. Some people who drink alcohol, in the first three months of the pandemic were um, upping their alcohol purchases via e-commerce and Nielsen tracked data that showed a tremendous amount of supersized alcohol purchases then, along with a lot more gun purchases. Again, mm-hmm. something worrisome for me. I'm, I'm saying I'm anti-gun. I'm saying I, having more guns around is a public health risk uh and we have data data supporting that so i mean yeah the 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 pandemic after the pandemic or the epidemic after the pandemic is mental and behavioral health ptsd big p little p doesn't matter but everybody has been stressed and we all have to work it out in our respective personal ways based on our own values so the good news is i've been um Tracking and doing quite a bit of work in cognitive therapy uh, via technology for over 10 years now, starting in the UK with the the organization Beating the Blues. Interestingly, Beating the Blues used to be a CD-ROM program and a nice... Nice, exactly. I'm that old. Nice. was Look, look it up in Google, my, my, my young friends. Um, but uh, nice, which are the evaluators of, of health technology, the health economics outcomes folks in Europe, evaluated beating the blues as a substitute and a first line therapy for when an NHS doctor diagnosed a patient with mild to moderate anxiety or depression before the NHS would allow that doctor to prescribe fluoxetine, a generic, mm-hmm. uh, this patient had to use the CD-ROM to see how they would do. And it, with mild Uh, to uh, moderate anxiety or depression, over 50% of patients never needed the pill. I'm a huge fan of CBT. I think we could all benefit from cognitive therapy, particularly right now, but really every day because life is hard. I mean, particularly our digital lives uh, before the pandemic, but now, of course, isolation, loneliness. So there's lots of hope there for tech.
1: Absolutely. No, it's fantastic. And we're coming up now. Obviously, we've gone through only a small portion of this fantastic book. So I want to close with something that you closed with in your book. And I'm just going to read this directly. I loved it. The pandemic has made it self evident that healthcare is a civil right, that Americans have undergone digital transformation that requires attendant data privacy rights, that trust has eroded. And without it, people will not share that valuable data to benefit public health and that the new social contract is truly love for one another and for our country. Onward, health citizens. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jane. With that, back to you, Greg.
0: And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank author, health economist, advisor, and friend, Jane Saracen-Khan. Follow Jane's work on Twitter via at Healthy And for more information or to order Health Citizenship, How a Virus Opened Hearts and Minds, go to www.healthcitizenship.com For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Jane Saracen-Khan, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. We will get through this together and please do mask up when in public. We can slow the spread of this deadly virus. Bye now.